You are listening to Clinical Pearls. Hello, everybody. I am post-call, so I might be a little loopy during this podcast. Last night, which was really busy, I got called for stat fetal D-cells. When I arrived, of course, the patient appropriately was placed on her side, given IV fluid bolus, uterotonic medication was halted, and she was being blasted by high-flow oxygen by face mask. Does oxygen for fetal D-cells really work? Let's take a look at that data now. The use of oxygen for intrauterine resuscitation has a history of more than seven decades. Clinical practice is so ingrained that most obstetricians and midwives administer oxygen intuitively at the first sign of a non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracing and prophylactically in the second stage of labor. It is estimated that every year, over half of all laborers, about 3.2 million, receive supplemental oxygen in the U.S. How However, evidence of hypoxemia does not actually exist in these women. Despite the widespread use, the effect of supplemental maternal oxygen in labor is still very actively debated. Now remember that we know that the PO2 in the umbilical vein is normally set at around 30 millimeters, much lower than that of a typical adult. The reason for this, remember, is that fetal hemoglobin is a great scavenger of oxygen even at lower concentrations. This pushes the adult oxygen dissociation curve to the left, meaning even if the mother has a drop in her PO2, fetal hemoglobin has such high affinity for oxygen that it still guarantees oxygen delivery to the fetus. In 2008, Michael Hayden et al. published The Effect of Maternal Oxygen Administration on Fetal Pulse Ox During Labor in Fetuses That Had Non-Reassuring Fetal Heart Rate Patterns. This was published in the American Journal of OBGYN. In fetuses with specified abnormal, non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracings, oxygen was administered to the mother and fetal oxygenation was monitored with fetal pulse ox. After the fetal oxygen saturation on room air was recorded as a baseline, oxygen was administered to the mother for 30 minutes at 40% fraction of inspired oxygen and then 30 minutes at 100% of inspired oxygen. The average fetal oxygen saturation during the last 15 minutes of each period was then calculated. They concluded that the administration of supplemental oxygen to laboring patients with non-reassuring fetal heart rate patterns does increase fetal oxygen saturation substantially and significantly. Fetuses with the lowest initial oxygen saturation appeared to increase the most. However, more recent data has called the results into question. Primarily, is more oxygen in utero necessarily a good thing? 
Some data suggests that it's not. Maureen Hamill, in 2014, published in the American Journal of OBGYN, Oxygen for Intrauterine Resuscitation of Unproven Benefit and Potentially Harmful. As stated by the authors in that publication, maternal oxygen is often given to laboring women to improve fetal metabolic status or in an attempt to alleviate a non-reassuring fetal heart rate pattern. However, the only two randomized trials investigating the use of maternal oxygen supplementation in laboring women do not support that such supplementation. Actually, there's some fear that it could actually be harmful by increasing free radical activity. Maternal oxygen supplementation should not be done, according to those authors, until randomized clinical trials prove a benefit, and it should be reserved for maternal hypoxia and should not be considered an indicated intervention for a non-reassuring fetal heart rate. Again, that's the opinion of Maureen Hamill et al. in 2014. The idea is that maternal hypoxia is unlikely to account for late D-cells outside of maternal status asthmaticus or eclampsia or other conditions that make the mother truly hypoxic. And that's because, as we've already discussed, the fetal hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve. There is no data that maternal O2 intrapartum actually improves neonatal status outside of IV hydration and positional changes. There is some evidence that it may actually trigger free radical injury, especially to vulnerable neurons like the extremely premature child. All right, all right. Don't start sending me emails because you don't like that data and you want more information because we've been doing high flow oxygen for D cells for a long time. Well, I'm with you. There should be more data. And there is. This finding from Hamill was confirmed in a separate study in 2017 and presented at the SMFM pregnancy meeting in Dallas in 2018. That data was presented by Dr. Ragerman from WashU in St. Louis. In brief, the study comprised of 114 women in active labor with a normal singleton fetus that developed category 2 fetal heart rate tracings. Women received either oxygen at 10 liters per minute by face mask or stayed on room air with no face mask. The intervention continued until delivery. The primary outcome was umbilical artery lactate level. Secondary outcomes were umbilical artery blood gases, C-section for non-reassuring fetal heart rate status, and operative vaginal delivery. The results were interesting. Before we get into the results, a quick word about the patient demographics. The women were a mean age of 27 and a half years, and about three quarters of the study's subjects were black. Most, 70%, had a labor induction, and 89% received oxytocin. There were no between-group differences in the need for other fetal resuscitation strategies like IV fluid bolus, total IV fluids, discontinuation or decrease in oxytocin, maternal repositioning, amnu infusion, or the time from randomization to delivery. In other words, both groups were relatively similar. The results showed that there was no difference in the primary outcome. Remember, that was an umbilical artery lactate level. Lactate levels were 3.4 in the oxygen group and 3.5 in the room air group. 
meaning that supplemental maternal oxygen in labor did not change the fetal metabolic status. Dr. Raguraman also looked at lactate levels among those neonates who had recurrent D-cells and those who didn't. And once again, there was no significant difference between those comparison groups. Now, the secondary outcome of umbilical artery blood gases included measurements of pH, base excess, partial pressure of CO2, and of oxygen. And again, there was no significant differences in any of those comparisons. Partial O2 was higher, though not statistically so, in the samples that had been exposed to oxygen, but that's what would be expected. But nonetheless, it did not change the overall neonatal outcome. There were actually fewer cesarean deliveries among the room air group, and that's ironic, although this was not statistically significant. Two neonates in the oxygen group were delivered by C-section for non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracings, and there were more operative vaginal deliveries in the room air group, but that difference was not statistically significant. So, here is what those authors concluded. Quote, despite the widespread use of oxygen in intrauterine resuscitation, there is no guideline that codifies its indication, metabolism, dose range, duration, or curative effect. Supplemental maternal oxygen has been employed for many years on the assumption that a non-reassuring fetal heart rate pattern implied that a fetus was poorly oxygenated, supported by many non-randomized trials showing that oxygen therapy could increase fetal oxygen saturation and alleviate the non-reassuring fetal heart rate pattern. However, this was not proved in our study. I know, I've irritated some people already because we all love our maternal oxygen in labor for D-cells. But, sorry, that's what the data shows. Alright, well what does ACOG say? Well, ACOG actually works both sides of the coin in their statement. In the practice bulletin from 2009, on the fetal heart rate three-tier classification, they make the following statement. Oxygen administration at 10 liters per minute via non-rebreather face masks may be considered if there is minimal to absent variability and or recurrent late D-cells or prolonged D-cells. So that sounds like it's an endorsement, right? Well, then they make the following statement. However, the SMFM has noted that there is limited data to support this, despite its widespread use. So, what do we do with all this? Well, let's cover some final thoughts next. Look, persistent fetal D-cells in labor, or persistent Category 2 strips, are a level of concern. They require attention, and they raise a level of stress for all OB practitioners, as well as the patient and their family. The quick and the first intervention should include a search for offending factors like tachycystole, quick drops in blood pressure, vaginal bleeding that may be a marker for suspected abruption, or even things like cord prolapse. After that, changes in maternal position and IV fluid boluses to help increase uteroplacental blood flow should be considered frontline. 
While maternal oxygen administration is widely utilized for intrauterine recess, current practices are changing. The authors that we've covered in this podcast do raise some valid concerns that the use of supplemental maternal oxygen in labor could potentially be harmful because of increased oxygen-free radical activity, especially on those babies that have early gestational ages, like less than 32 weeks. So, until proper randomized trials do show substantial benefit, not just in fetal oxygen level, but in overall outcome, it is the author's opinion in the studies that we've covered that supplemental oxygen should be reserved for cases of true maternal hypoxia. And there it is. I know, I've probably irritated some folks because, once again, we just love our maternal oxygen in labor for D-cells. Now, a quick note about that. Maternal oxygen during the second stage of labor can be considered. Now, that's different because, in general, when pushing out a watermelon from a keyhole, it would be nice to give supplemental oxygen for maternal support and not necessarily fetal support. All right, that wraps up our post-call podcast on the use of supplemental maternal oxygen in labor for D-cells. The data is evolving, and I know we all love placing face masks on our patients because it makes us feel better, but it may not necessarily make the babies feel better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.